the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast. My name is Adam Woodhall, and today I am delighted to have Richard Barker of Iona Capital uh, joining me here. Great to be here, Adam. Lovely to meet you. And uh, Richard is an advisor and an investment committee member of uh, the company. What, how would you describe what the company does? Iona Capital is, uh, is an environmental infrastructure investor. So it invests in renewable energy projects, waste recycling projects, all centered around sustainability and low carbon projects. And we predominantly invest today in the UK. So it's all about making the UK greener and uh, more sustainable. Yeah, great. And how I met Richard was uh, he was giving a talk at a conference, which I found uh, a really interesting one. And just recently, he's actually done a TED talk uh, which is a fascinating one, and some of the conversation in that um, I'll be uh, we'll be talking about. And I'd recommend you, when you've listened to this today, to go and watch that TED talk as well. If you want to find out uh, more about uh, inspiring sustainability online, you can find us at inspiring-sustainability.com. Um, there's all the podcasts there, um, plus more information about us as an organisation, and then also you can obviously uh, find the. Uh, podcasts on your favorite uh, app on your smartphone. And so, uh, Richard, in the conversation that we're having before we started this podcast, you said something which I think I, I want to start off by because I wrote it down in big, bold letters. Is you said, the reality is there's enough money and wealth in the world. Um, and that was really interesting for me because it might not seem that intuitive to people that there's enough money to solve the climate challenge that we've got here so let's start off with that bit that what i think is a bit of a bombshell there um and uh, understand where you're coming from okay well first of all let's let's unpack that question when i said there's you know i think there's enough wealth and enough money what it, what i do mean in a static sense um i'm kind of i am a capitalist so i believe that wealth needs to grow and develop so i'm not saying there's enough money in the world per se what i'm saying is there's enough wealth in the world to tackle the climate issue. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, we've got, you know, the, the world's GDP is around $120 uh, trillion a year, give or take a few tens of trillion, depending on the size of the black economy. Um, and, you know, pension funds have anywhere between kind of 60 and, uh, and $80 trillion of uh, funds under management across the globe. Uh, and if you look at some of the reports uh, that talk about in order to hit, uh, you know, the Paris Accord two degree ceiling, we need to be investing five to six trillion dollars a year, trillion dollars a year in sustainable infrastructure, up from a current investment of around three to four trillion dollars a year in infrastructure, which is what's going on at the moment. You know, that is around a three percent change in global GDP investment. Wow. Uh, and it is absolutely within, you know, the kind of envelope of how the current financial system works in terms of recycling, deploying pension fund monies, banking funds and other bits and pieces. So this for me is, is you know, when I hear people say, well, you know, how are we going to tackle this, this, this problem and where's the money going to come from? It isn't an absolute wealth uh, or absolute availability of money issue uh, in the grandest sense. What it is about is about how we best direct that money in the most appropriate way. And I think, you know, what we have is, certainly from what I've seen, is we have a financial sector globally that's centred primarily in kind of New York, London and the other big financial centres, which probably isn't fit for purpose for the next 30 or 50 years. It, it very much is based on 
some of the traditional uh, structures, the pension funds, you know, investing into an allocation of bonds and equities and real estate and other bits and pieces, rather than thinking about the mega trends that are hitting us, one of which clearly is climate change, we've got things like AI and other, you know, the demographic shifts as well. And I think, you know, a lot of the financial sector is not, uh, if you like, hasn't got its head around how it needs to evolve and change to make the kind of investments that are required to make this transition, this global transition, uh, and also uh, the risks of not making the change uh, that is required. And, you know, I'll just give you, you know, a, a simple story. Um, I was at a dinner recently, and, you know, as I was looking around the, the table, you know, there were some traditional heavy-duty bankers who, you know, used to invest in nuclear power stations and you, you name it, the big infrastructure. There were some big private equity guys who invest in the same city lawyers who charged tens of millions of pounds for drawing up the legal documents. And then you had government, you know, advisors who, who, who were there. And you look around, you say, well, you guys are great at investing in coal power stations, gas-fired power stations, because that's how your credit committees work, your investment committees work. That's how government ministers with hard hats and high-vis jackets like to open power stations and lawyers like to draft 2,000-page documents. Whereas, you know, the equivalent of building a Hinkley C at the astronomical cost of £23 billion, which is the world's most expensive built project in the history of mankind, which itself is, a, is another topic, um, for £23 billion, you could install in 6 million houses across the UK. So one quarter of the UK's housing stock, solar panels and batteries. So, you know, that for me says, because we're familiar with project finance, like Hinkley C, that's what a lot of the city does. The city can't really get its head around funding the installation of 6 million solar panels and batteries and what that means, because you can't get security on it. Who's your counterparty? What do the lawyers do? Government can't open 6 million you know, rooftop solar projects because the government minister doesn't get his photo time. So we're in a very different world when we talk about sustainability. We're in a very different, you know, where the finance sector needs to react. We all need to react in a different way. But critically, government needs to think in a different way because, you know, we're moving into a space where government has responsibilities outside of the election cycle mm. more and more. So Dan, this actually brings me back around to the uh, TED Talk that you did, because the TED Talk actually, even though it's about climate change, opens up talking about slavery, uh, which is a very emotive subject. Um, but let's go uh, kind of back to the end of the kind of slavery in the UK as how, how it went. And talk to me about the sort of... Um, what 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 was the kind of an agreement that happened there? Because that's something similar, than really, to what you're kind of highlighting there in many senses. What what was achieved? Okay. Well, you know, I won't go into the kind of tortuous history of the abolition of slavery, which you know started in the 1780s and finished in the 1830s. But the denouement for me was after you know 45 years or so of. Uh, of just fascinating political and, you know, manoeuvring and lobbying and campaigning. You know, we ended up in a situation where, you know, the three main players who were the, the campaigning movements, government and the landowners who owned, you know, the sugar plantations in the Caribbean, South Africa, Mauritius, um, essentially, you know, agreed a transaction where the government would pay... Uh, in old money, uh, £20 million to the slave owners as compensation uh, 
for their slaves. And that's equivalent to around £60 billion pounds today. Um, and that was equivalent, that £20 billion on an aggregate basis was equivalent to roughly 45% of the market value of a slave at the time. The slaves themselves, who depressingly in today's world were treated as a commodity, you know, had to sign up to around a six-year apprenticeship to work out their, their, their kind of, if you like, their indentured slavery uh, through to being free men. So they had to sign up for another six years, and that was equivalent to roughly 35% of, of the value of a slave at the time. Uh, and then the last piece was recognised as an absolute 20% loss to the slave owner. Mm. Um, and so, if you like, all the parties had to take their pain. Mm. So the slave owners had to take a loss. Uh, government said the only way we can push through this moral righteous act was we need to make a payment, a compensation payment, to take slavery out. Mm. Um, and, you know, depressingly, you know, the slaves weren't released on the day, but had to work for six years. To, to work that out. Now, you know, what, what does that tell us? You know, that tells us that in order to solve climate change, those three equivalent parties today need to come up with some kind of, you know, triangular middle ground, uh, you know, which is what all of the owners of fossil fuel assets, so the big oil companies, the pension funds that invest them, what does that look like to them in terms of their end value gain compensation? What roles the government have in writing a cheque or legislating for the equivalent of compensation, which obviously then goes on to public debt, which you and I as taxpayers will pay, essentially. And then, you know, what is the, you know, for me, having a slave working for an extra year is a bit like how much more carbon are we going to allow going into the atmosphere? Mm. Mm. You know, and we've defined our two-degree limit, so we know what our equivalent is. We're only going to allow a certain amount of carbon to go into the atmosphere, and so we've kind of predetermined that. But you know, what I find fascinating is that through raising those funds, uh, you know, raising government debt to pay compensation to the landowners, who were by by and large the investing classes in the UK, fully over twenty percent of the wealth, uh, the wealthy in the UK, were directly related to the slavery sector. Mm. So, you know, one-fifth of the UK's investing classes, you know, received some form of compensation or other. They then had to recycle that money somewhere. So what do people do in the 1830s and 1840s with all this kind of, you know, windfall cash? They started investing it in bridge railways. They started investing it in factories. They started investing in some of the innovation that was going through the Victorian period. Now, what that did in turn is that huge influx of investment into Victorian Britain saw, as we all know, the huge transformation of Victorian Britain in the Industrial Revolution. And if you compare that to France, to Italy, the other countries, that they never made that transformational leap to the extent that Victorian Britain did at the time. And in part, you can look at the that compensation event driving investment monies into new technologies into machinery. So rather than, you know, to, to be to be quite simplistic about it, rather than employing slaves and manual labor on the ground, we were beginning to see machines taking place. So, you know, if you no longer have a, in quotes, a free resource of a slave on a plantation, you start saying, well, how do I reduce the cost of, you know, of tilling the ground? And the answer is tractors, steam locomotives. And so you start to see a transformation of the efficiency in the economies, not only on the ground, but uh, on a macro. So for me, the news that I see in climate change is we spend a huge amount of time talking about all oh, the costs.
cost of you know sustainability, the cost of of taking this out. But actually, if you take a look at the parallels with Victorian Britain, we should look less at the cost and more at the opportunity. You know, and, and for me, if we look forward 50, 80 years, unshackling ourselves from um, fossil fuels and from carbon and, you know, the, the collateral impact that has on the planet it is an extraordinary opportunity. You know, and just to give you the example, it, we, are, we are incredibly close to a world where we can have free electricity. You know, more sunlight falls on the earth every hour than we, or the energy of sunlight falls on the earth every hour than we use in a whole year. So essentially, we are never going to use all of the sunlight that, that hits the earth and certainly the wind. So if you're in a world with free electricity, what you can do with electricity to you know, convert water to hydrogen, to you know, convert some other chemicals, um, you are in an incredibly interesting place in terms of just our new kind of industrial revolution 50, 80 years out is going to be transformation for this planet. Mm. But we spend less time thinking about that uh, and more time you know, concerned about the immediate cost and the balance sheet impact and other bits and pieces. And just, just on the side there, I'll, I'll just tell a little story. I was running a business uh, in France uh, over a decade ago, and I heard a great story. Um, and I've forgotten exactly who the, uh, who the pros were, but I think it was the French foreign minister met in about 1979, the Chinese foreign minister. And the French foreign minister said, um, what do you think of the, of the French Revolution? Uh, and the Chinese foreign minister's response was, I think it's a bit too early to tell you. You know, and that for me, you know, tells us everything we need to know about a lot of the Chinese view of the world, which is clearly long-termist. And we're seeing that in their industrial strategy today in terms of what they're doing. They're the biggest investors in renewable and clean energy in the world at the moment. You know, the way they're approaching infrastructure investment is a long-term game. Whereas, you know, if we look where we are today in the US and the UK, for example, government's ability to mobilize infrastructure investment is laughably small. And if you look at the state of US highways, you look at the state of a lot of UK's infrastructure, it's because we are caught in a short-term cycle. Now, you know, I'm not making any political lobbying factor about, you know, totalitarian regimes versus democratic but fundamentally, when we think about infrastructure, we have to change our time horizon um, because infrastructure is not a short-term play. It is a long-term you know, value-creating opportunity. Yeah, and absolutely fascinating there, the connection between slavery and how that has got transformed and how, what you're suggesting here. So I'm sure, actually, the listeners are going to be curious. Um, What's in your career has got you so that, um, number one, that you've got this really good understanding on the sustainability front, um, and then maybe follow that with a little bit is what, what piqued your interest to again kind of like do the research on the slavery side, which I'm sure most people don't know about that. Right. Well, I suppose, I mean, my background is a complete Mongol. So, you know, I was a trained engineer um, uh, and then went into management consulting. So I worked in a range of industries from brewing to automotive to the financial services sector. So, you know, I saw a broad range of industries and, you know, with an engineer's eye, you tend to take a process look. You say, you know, how does this process work? How efficient is it? Where are the losses? How can we make it better? Uh, and then I also trained as an economist. Uh, I used to lecture in economics. So I had an acute kind of fusion of practical engineering process view and the economic reality of, uh, you know, of those kind of issues. 
So I, I suppose I always took that view and I, I, I ended up working in Australia. I was head of strategy of ANZ, Australian New Zealand Bank's investment banking business. Uh, and they were a very big emerging markets investor. So I spent my time in places like uh, Sri Lanka and India and you know uh, Southeast Asia looking at hydro projects, power station projects, and looking at how you fund that as an investment bank. And I suppose that really started to get my interest in wow, you know, we have a huge infrastructure challenge. You know, as the developing economies move, this is big money flowing. These are projects and, you know, we are baking in potentially huge carbon. So if you're building a coal-fired power station where it's a 30-year return for your investors who could be, you know, uh, you know, retail depositors of bank monies in Australia or wherever else, that's a lot of carbon. It's not as though you can switch that. So I kind of was carrying that, and then I and I always wanted to get back into engineering. So I, I kind of ended up entrepreneurially working with engineers in chemical process technology businesses and raising money for those. And suddenly, ended up running France's biggest aluminium recycling business. We bought that off Alcan, and then I was in the UK running uh, and raising money for a very big biogas renewable energy biogas business. So I suppose I've always been on the you know at that interface with industry and finance uh, and most recently over the last three or four years of I own a capital clearly you know we are as a fund about attracting investment from pension funds and from investors into our funds so that we can put that into to work in sustainable infrastructure so you know on my journey what I see is a world with significant amounts of capital but constrained within the context of the way the finance sector works. And, you know, the, the finance industry isn't that innovative. It's innovative when it comes to you know, trying to get around tax laws and come up with derivatives that kind of, you know, arbitrage the, you know, the closest millisecond, if you like, like the, you know, the, the famous book, Fast Boys, Flash Boys, for example. So, but it isn't innovative when you look at it structurally. Mm. You know what what has to change. So so I think what I see is an industry where what we need to do is create a narrative around the opportunity that's there, the return that's there from taking longer term investments in sustainable infrastructure, and why there is a macro economic benefit and social benefit to actually taking those views. Um, yeah, and you know, and I, I suppose you know why I, you know how I got interested in the slavery piece um, was a mixture of things. I saw a, a documentary on BBC Two about about Britain's slave uh, history, probably about five years ago, and I remember thinking at the time, "Wow, I n- I know nothing about Britain's slave history." And when you know, whenever I thought of slavery, I thought of you know, twelve years a slave, gone with the wind, uh, those other things. And it was always built on the American narrative. Uh, I just thought, well, you know, what is Britain's narrative on slavery? Uh, you know, and I knew about William Wilberforce and kind of the things that we all knew about, but certainly it was never a topic at school and it's never been a topic of conversation, you know, amongst any of my friends and peer group. You know, I've got friends who studied history in Oxford and Cambridge and elsewhere. And so I started just digging around and saying, well, what is the story here? Who were the movers and shakers in making the transformation and why did it happen? Because... You know, even though when I started researching that I didn't know it at the time, 
I kind of I think subconsciously had a view that we need we need to think about the narrative of climate change, um, and I think you know the climate change narrative can be seen as a negative narrative, which is hey society's doing stuff wrong. You know pollution is necessarily wrong, and it's going to cost more to fix it. And do we want to spend more? And people have to take more responsibility to do these things. Whereas I actually think the narrative, you can shift that into, there is a much more positive outcome from doing the right thing. And, you know, luckily, I think we're beginning to see more of that narrative come in. It's an easier narrative. So, you know, today, the cheapest form of electricity, new electricity, is solar or wind. Mm. In many parts of the world, it's cheaper than traditional fossil fuel. So I think that narrative, but for me, we need to find alternative narratives for either individuals to latch onto, to change the way they live, or we need to find new narratives so that governments or corporates can change, or indeed the financial services sector can change the way it thinks about itself. Uh, and so that's where I started digging and getting interest, because it's all about trying to, you know, create alternative perspectives from the orthodox view. Mm. Yeah, it's, and it's uh, fascinating. I think we do need to bring in those ways of thinking differently and alternatively about this because whilst there's been definitely things changing around sustainability and climate change um, clearly they're not changing fast enough and uh, so what it means actually is it's exciting for me because that means we need to be more creative it means that we can't rely on what we is the logical intuitive way of approaching things we need to think of uh counterintuitive, uh, clever things. We've got to try and test things, let them fail. And, and you know, one of the things that, you know, I really admire that you got up on stage at a TED Talk and, and talked about an area which isn't, you've not done a PhD in this and you, you just went for it and you, you're exploring this area. And it's why I was, you know, really uh, looking forward to this conversation today. So <clears throat> one of the things that you've talked about is that the, you've said, you know, one of the big impacts is about how the city, um, whether that be in London or globally, uh, thinks around money. And because there is enough money there if we get it moving in the right direction. And uh, that you used, obviously, the analogy of the slave trade to show how that, that was moved. And then it created a, uh, a momentum so that in Britain, particularly, the Industrial Revolution was uh, kind of like hyperspeed comparatively. So that's all great and that's really big. Uh, but one of the things I'm sure the listeners are thinking about is that maybe for some people that they've not really heard of some of this stuff before and it feels potentially quite out of touch because obviously they're not working in the city. Uh, if you are, yeah, get in touch with Richard and I'm sure he'll uh, want to help you. Um, but what I'd like to maybe uh, kind of uh, talk about what, whilst we kind of come coming towards the end of this, is actually what are the sort of things that we could do uh, as individuals uh, to get to get that? And uh, so, yeah, and I, I, we had a discussion about this beforehand, and I think there's three really good areas which have some subsets to them, which I'd, I'd love to kind of okay. talk about. <clears throat> well, you know, I think for me, one of the questions is there, you know, there's around, as I say, 60 to $80 trillion of, funds under management in pension funds and non, non, if you like, bank institutions around the world. Now, whose money is that? That is individuals' money aggregated. So it's our pension funds, it's our investment funds, other bits and pieces. So, you know, if you look at that money, 
you know, at the moment, you know, many of the funds that are out there that manage our money as individuals, you know, they will tend to say, oh, we've got an allocation for sustainability. You know, and it is vanishingly small today. It might be a couple of percent. And some will say we've got an allocation for infrastructure. Um, and again, you know, they have traditionally been big investors in infrastructure. It's tend to be left to government up to probably 25 years ago to invest. And then we've had, you know, some of the banks uh, and the other institutions and all. But, but pension funds have not, have not moved much in the space. So I think for me, one of the areas is as we as individuals in aggregate move to say we want our monies invested sustainably uh, in either sustainable corporates or sustainable infrastructure, you know, that movement will move the percentage, which is, you know, less than a trillion dollars today of pension fund money is invested in sustainable infrastructure. Um, you know, that will move funds. And, you know, and I'll, and I'll give you, a, you know, the parallel uh, analogy I sometimes use here, which is around organ donation. So if you're in the UK or the US, um, you currently have to opt um, into organ donation. So when you get your driver's license in the UK, you're presented with a tick box that says, do you want to donate your organs? Tick this box. Now, the assumption is that you don't unless you tick the box. Whereas if you go to somewhere like Austria, they have an opt out where you have to tick a box to opt out. Now, you know, if you're into kind of nudge theory and those other things, what will not surprise you is that you know, the vast majority of people don't bother opting into organ donation in the UK. And the vast majority of people, because they can't be bothered to opt out, don't bother opting out in Austria. So that means in Austria, about 85% of people donate their organs upon their death, whereas in the UK, it's between 10 and 15%. Mm. So if you're looking for organ donation, you're better to be in an opt-out country. Now, so that that's the basic numbers. But I think what's more interesting to me is the psychology of that. So if you ask a question in the UK what do you think about organ donation? The answer in the UK is, isn't it an amazing altruistic gift? It's such a generous thing to do to give your organs after your death. I mean, you know, what a great person you're going to be. If you ask the same question in Austria, the answer is, it's trivial. Well, you die, who cares? Of course you give your organs. Now, you know, what's different there is the nudge factor has not only changed the absolute percentage of people that do it, but it's also changed the psychology of it. So if you take that parallel to pension fund investment, where today your pension fund may offer you the opportunity to opt into sustainable and green investment funds. Um, if you flip that on its head and you force government to have all pension funds had to invest sustainably unless pension fund investors opted out at an individual level, you would see a mass change of those investment funds that had to be put into work sustainably. So that, you know, then for me, there are things that government can do to lead. There are things that we can do as individuals actively seeking out the tick box of opting in, in yeah. that case. And so this kind of uh, loops in because I know that you've got another one of your points, which I think this is, is directly around, which is the political engagement side of things. But then also, actually, uh, something uh, we mentioned beforehand was that you can lobby not only your own pension fund by asking them, but you could also talk to your own uh, company about where it's placing its money. Right. And uh, so um, maybe, th first of all, cause, uh, talk a little bit about how you think that um, kind of that can happen within organizations, that the individuals within organizations could, could have an influence on their organization about how it's investing its money 
and other things. Okay, I've, I've you know I've done a number of talks um, on climate change. You know, from schools and colleges to uh, you know some big multinational corporates um, about climate change and what you can do. And, and as a simple as an employee, clearly you can do things as an individual. So you know when you look at your recycling bin at work, you can make sure you put your can in the right bin. But you know, some corporates I've been involved with have green councils or green teams or whatever you call it, which are motivated individuals that work, you know, maybe alongside their day job or together with, you know, the sustainability departments within companies to say, how do we make this business more green? And increasingly, businesses see it as a, a net financial benefit to them as well as a, a societal benefit. You know, and that could be, for example, you know, anything from, is this corporate buying renewable energy? You know, and what we've seen over the last 10 years is the number of corporates globally that are now, you know, over 90% of their energy is is renewable and they're buying actively renewable energy. And so, you know, I remember I was with the CEO of Lego uh, a couple of months ago and he said all of their electricity is renewable and indeed they've bought their own wind, mm-hmm. winter wind farms. You know, and you're seeing Apple, Google, who are now either investing directly in solar farms or wind farms or making sure they're buying long-term electricity from those. So you could say to your corporate, do you buy renewable energy? Very simple to do. In fact, in many cases, it won't cost anything more than today. Um, But also, if you buy it in a certain way, you reduce the risk to your business. Because the one thing is an absolute truism. We're going to see more volatility in energy prices moving forward. That's the nature of you know, a transition economy, which we're seeing at the moment. We're already seeing much more volatility in energy prices over the last five years than we have over the last 20 years. So, you know, I think there are things you do at corporate, which could be from, you know, their energy policy through to their sustainability of, you know, you track anything from water usage and you simply, you know, put a brick in the toilet system to reduce the amount of water for flush. You know, there are very trivial things you do to say, why don't we change the staff canteen to one day a week as non-meat? And you can actually say, well, that's a certain number of tons of carbon saving and all those other bits and pieces. And, you know, certainly I've been involved in schools and colleges where, you know, children who create their own student councils, green councils, are incredibly engaged. Mm. They create their own projects and they move on. And you actually can have a demonstrable impact upon the carbon efficiency of, you know, anything from school to, to a company. So there are things you can do as a good citizen and things you can do as an employee and things that you can do as part of teams within your corporate. And you don't underestimate that. And also corporate buying has a disproportionately large impact upon other corporate behavior. Absolutely. And I think that's something, I'm, that last point I'm, why I'm really interested in because I, I used to do a lot of Green Champions team council training and it effectively used to be really focused on how do we get the recycle, get our colleagues to recycle more, which is great and important. But from my experience, what you're talking about here is, as well as continuing to do that, get asking the question of the company, where are you getting your energy from? What are the plans to change? And if, you know, one example, if the listeners want to look at some examples, there's a, um, a co- an organization called RE100 um that uh, focuses on that and th- those companies that Richard mentioned are actually part of the RE100 who are aiming for 100% renewable energy and but then also you know organizations whether it's your your company whether it's your council whether it's actually your university they have pension pots themselves you can lobby them to either divest from fossil fuels or invest in sustainable uh, ways 
And I think that's really important. And and also something that you were alluding to all day is like renewable energy tariffs. Tell, tell me a bit more, because you actually gave me a nice analogy about that as well. Well, I, you know, I, you know, I think we could all at a domestic level look for, uh, you know, renewable energy tariffs. There are a load on the market. It's very easy to, you know, search on one of the comparison websites at the moment. You know, and I just got a, a nice email through the post the other day from uh, Octopus uh, Energy to plug a, <laughs> a renewable energy company that said, hey, by the way, we've transferred, you know, all of our accounts to renewable energy at no extra cost. Yeah. So, you know, what's clear to me, and it's not surprising, is that renewable energy is not a, you know, an economic cost to the consumer anymore, increasingly won't be. Uh, and it's something that you can get at parity with your normal brown energy contracts. So, you know, again, I'd encourage you to take a couple of minutes to look on a website, see what your renewable energy tariffs can be and make the change. Because ultimately what is going to happen in that market is if enough corporates and individuals um, want to sign up to renewable energy, the signaling the market is clear. Because people will go, we can't sell our brown electricity anymore, so therefore we need to move more and more to green. And if you can invest in green electricity at the same or lower rates than legacy brown uh, carbon systems, you will be you know, providing what the consumer needs. So I think, again, if we talk about nudge tactics, this works actually throughout you know, the normal kind of market mechanisms. Absolutely. And just for, uh, if you want an easy way to find it, listener, um, there's a, a website called Big Clean Switch which is like the co-compare for clean energy. And uh, and then the final point, which is what you've already you've already touched upon, is actually around political engagement. And uh, and that's something being kind of quite comparatively proactive. But I'd, I'd be curious about uh, what you think about that, because one of the things going back to the slavery movement, there was a hell of a lot of political engagement around that. And that it didn't happen just because slave owners and government woke up one day and decided we need to do something. Those individuals and movements around that. So, tell us a bit more about how you think that can happen. Now. Well, look, you know, just to spend five seconds on on the on the slavery analogy. You know, the birth of modern political campaigning happened with the abolitionist movement, um, and every single kind of you know modern political campaigning strategy and tactic was used for the first time back then, from you know celebrity endorsements to you know, branded goods and products to, you know, the kind of uh, laying yourself out in noisy, jeering groups in front of politicians and other bits and pieces. So the, you know, that progressive and sustained campaigning movement absolutely drove change uh, with the abolition of slavery. Um, and, you know, many different tactics and kind of subgroups, you know, you had the kind of gradual abolitionist movement who were all terribly sensible and wanted to do it within the political frameworks to the the more firebrand, you know, kind of wanted immediate abolition of slavery, but they all, you know, put pressure on the various body politic points mm-hmm. that ultimately made the change. And I, and I think, you know, you would see it from, you know, town halls in, you know, some of the early, you know, industrial towns in the northwest of Britain in Preston. And these weren't people who had a world view and a sophisticated view of slavery and the supply chains around slavery. They were, you know, uneducated working people of limited literacy, but actually shared the cause. Mm. Um, so, you know, it really was top to bottom in terms of, you know, a, a campaigning movement. You know, and, and I think today the kind of campaigning is from, you know, how do you affect central government policy to how do you affect your local town's approach to planning to, you know, preparing itself for a more environmental infrastructure. And we've seen, you know, 
Netherlands and Denmark with bike lanes and other bits and pieces. You know, some councils here are more progressive than others. And so you can absolutely have an impact upon your local environment, uh, which can seem more accessible and, uh, and easier to change, as well as trying to drive, you know, regional policies or indeed central policies or whatever it is. And, you know, and I think, you know, the takeout for me is that at a local political level, um, local council officials can be very, very responsive to, to local one-on-one engagement, be it letter-writing, town hall meetings or otherwise. And that will percolate up through the system. Um, and people often need the courage of you know, their voters and their constituents to give them the permission to be progressive in this space. Um, you know, and I was, uh, you know, I was at a meeting just to, to give you a little bit. I was at a meeting uh, talking about the kind of redevelopment of central Liverpool about a year ago, and it was filled with property developers. You know, who were saying we're going to create a new quarter and invest in you know new hotels and apartments and car parks and other bits and pieces. And I remember just kind of putting my hand up and saying, "Why are you building a car park, a multi-story car park in the centre of Liverpool? In twenty years' time, you know, look at look at the data." Millennials will not be having cars in the centre of Liverpool. So you're going to have an empty car park. So what does that mean? So if you're a property developer, you just want to flip that and have a car park and sell it on to someone else. If you're a planner, you might think in today's business, I don't want to clock streets, so I need car parks. But if you look at 10 to 15 year view, what's the utility of a car park? You know, when you've got electric vehicles or little kind of, you know, smart electric bikes and rechargeable scooters and other bits and pieces and autonomous vehicles picking people up and all the others, it fundamentally changes your local planning strategy. Mm-hmm. It changes your local development strategy. And what we need is just a little bit more progressive thinking to say, can we create a picture of what we want that isn't reactive to the technology and the new sustainable infrastructure world, but is actually helping lead that. Mm. Brilliant. Great. Right. Well, great way of uh, finishing on a really positive ra- rallying call there. And so it's been, you know, such a fascinating conversation. I'm really grateful that you've uh, given us the, the time uh, and space to uh, share this with the listeners. Um, so if the listeners want to find out about more about yourself, do you have any online ways they can, they can, can discover about you? Well, um, well, I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that respect. So probably I don't have kind of Twitter feeds or otherwise, but um, absolutely through, you know, I own a capital. Um, um, I'm easy to get hold of uh, through my company. And look, I'm also on the Al Gore Climate Reality Leadership Corps. So you know, really interested in meeting other people who have got an interest in this space. I do, as I said, a number of talks and I get involved in in a range of activities more broadly in the sustainability space. So, look, you know, this is a, this is a long journey and you often need fellow travellers on this road. So we're happy to, to talk to people. Brilliant. That's, that's, that's very gracious of you. And um, so... I'm just going to close this up with uh, thanking uh, Richard. Thank you uh, so much for this. And for those people who uh, want to know more about what I'm doing, uh, you can find me. I am a, a little bit more tech literate. You can find me on uh, Twitter, Adam Woodhall, all one word, and also LinkedIn. Uh, do you have a LinkedIn? I do, yeah. Right, okay. And Richard Barker. Richard uh, Barker, I own if you if you look at it. You'll, but you'll be able to find Richard there. And uh, you can also obviously find us on the website and apps uh, by looking for Inspiring Sustainability. 
And so uh, this is Adam Woodhall. Um, I hope to see you, or sorry, not see you. I'm getting very visual here. Hope to talk, be talking to you again in the soon. Uh, so maybe you can uh, subscribe to us on uh, your favorite app. And for today, thank you so much for listening. And I will bid you uh, an inspiring time going away and maybe trying to see how you can change pensions, create renewable energy or engage our politicians. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.